now it's time for Nostalgia Town, where we speak with well-known older Australians about the journey they took that makes them the person they are today. Dr Elizabeth Farrelly is a columnist, essayist, novelist, critic and speaker. Trained in architecture, science and philosophy, she is fascinated by how humans engage with nature to make culture. For over 30 years, her Sydney Morning Herald column on urbanism, planting, climate, politics and public art has seen city-making go from back-page news to headline material. I'm Patricia Amphlett and I'm joined with... Max Maranos. And here we are with lovely Elizabeth Farrelly. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to meet you. You too. And you're from Dunedin in New Zealand originally. What brought you to Australia? Oh, well, you know, coming to Australia was a bit of a story for me. I It wasn't uh, what I intended. I mean, you know, I just went to live in London as, as everyone did. Uh, back in the day. So I, I grew up mostly in Auckland, in fact, and, you know, started off studying medicine and then decided to study philosophy and then decided to study architecture and then just, and then practiced architecture for a bit. So I was a bit older than most people by the time I leapt off the edge of the uh, country into the old Europe. Um, and I, oh, I was 27, so not that old. And I worked in, well, I didn't actually work in London. <laughs> At first I thought, oh, London's too big, can't cope. Um, and it's too ugly. I thought London was really ugly. Something wrong with my eyes mm. at that stage. I think it was winter. And um, so I went to Bristol, took a job in Bristol and thought, you know what, Bristol's near the sea. I like the sea. And of course, it's not really near the sea. Anyway, after about a month, I went running back to London because Bristol was too boring. and Everyone went to bed at six o'clock at night, apparently. Yeah, so I took another <laughs> job and oh, a few more jobs, actually. And then after about a year in London, I ended up more or less falling into a job as um, an editor, assistant editor of of um, the Architectural Review, so I was working as an architect, and I got and I got um, fed up with uh, <laughs> this is very me. I I was having a drink one evening uh, in the summer with one of my old professors, Alan Wilde, who had actually been the dean of architecture in Auckland. He was over there on some Commonwealth board or other, and we were having a glass of wine, and I was having a whinge about the end of year show at the um the AA in London, which is a very prestigious kind of international independent architecture school where all the rich people went and people like Zaha Hadid um were teaching there, I think, at the time. And I thought, um, I could say, this is just, you know, it's fatuous and it's silly and and uh and it's it's not real architecture. And and he said, Well don't talk to me about it, you know, write it down and send it to someone. So I did. And I was immediately sort of published not on the front page, but on the kind of inside front page of a thing called Building Design, which was a, a weekly rag and in London. And um, so, I, so I was kind of notorious suddenly <laughs> because because I didn't realise that no one does that. You know, no one is critical, especially not a colonial, you know, you just mm. don't lob Ooh. into somewhere and tell them that they're <laughs> rubbish. And so um, uh, on the strength of that, really, I was more or less offered a job at the Architecture Review in London and... Yeah, and I worked there for a, a few years um, before realizing that you sort of had to come home and couldn't quite couldn't quite stomach the idea of going back to New Zealand, which was so small. So I thought Sydney seemed like a good compromise between you know between the kind of um, antipodean dream, if you like, and the big world, which I was still in love with. 
And it, it seems that since that time, you and Sydney have had a love-hate relationship with one another. Yeah. I, I must admit, Elizabeth, one of the things that fascinates me about Sydney is having come here from the country, a regional area, about 60-odd years ago, when I first moved here, I, th- I was struck by the amount of building that was going on, and that never seems to have stopped. <laughs> is there an end point? Will Sydney ever be finished? And is that common for, for large cities around the world? I don't get that feeling in other large cities. Sydney feels to me to be continually under construction. Yeah, look, um, I think you're right, it is. Uh, and in some ways that's a good thing because, you know, a city is a, a, is a living organism in a way and it um, probably what you don't want is an end point. But I think the way Sydney does it has always been is and has always been um, reckless, really. Uh, we fail to understand, much less value, our own heritage and what we've already got and what the beauty, in, in many cases, of what we've already made, not just the beauty of, of the natural attributes of Sydney. And so we kind of whop it down and start again with, with gay abandon um, when it would be much more uh, sensible and much more lovable as a result if we could be a bit more, a bit gentler with ourselves and a bit more loving towards what we've made already, I think. So, and I think that's what good cities do. And maybe that's just, you know, a new culture and and I think the cultural insecurity of being, as it were, white Australia and not really having come to terms with all of that background um, properly. Uh, and so there's, you know, we have a lot of guilt stuff and I think that often manifests as a sort of, anger towards our environment. Your PhD was in Sydney urbanism and you wrote the book Killing Sydney and you've been a City of Sydney councillor when Mm. I used to live there actually and uh, you are very invested in this city and as Lex said, you've got a love-hate relationship with it. (laughs) What do you really love about Sydney though? Oh, look, so much I love about Sydney. I I keep trying to leave. <laughs> I keep thinking, you know what, I'm going to go and live in Melbourne or I'm going to go and live in the country. And I sort of half do and then can't quite actually escape the um, the charisma of the place. And for me, it's not the obvious stuff that, you know, it's not the beaches and it's not even really the harbour and it's not, it is the nature, like the the entanglement of um, just looking at my window and seeing this great big uh eucalypt out in the street uh, the entanglement of nature and culture in the kind of particularly voluptuous but also sort of grungy way that sydney does it that and the the entwinement of um of the built fabric with all of the kind of wonderful nature stuff and i love the fact that that the stuff that we built you know the fabric that we we australians white australians arriving here you know, in um, 1788, started to build, uh, having been having been rejected by essentially the East End of London, by sort of the London or the English legal system and sent here as, as convicts for all kinds of spurious reasons mostly, um, but without any sort of money or future or education or skills or um, equipment much. 
Um, and so this terrible, terrible exile that was imposed upon people and their response to it arriving in this far-flung place with with no understanding of what they landed in or on was to kind of, um, you know, crowd to the very edge of the continent and then rebuild exactly the the fabric that of the place that had rejected them. So we've got kind of, uh, kind of the east end of London as, a, you know, a little bit of what is it kind of spitalfields or somewhere um rebuilt on on sydney harbour <laughs> completely inappropriate to the place and the culture and the climate and the you know topography and everything and and i think that's really charming perverse and nuts and damaged and beautiful <laughs> you know so touching i find it touching mm. and walking around those streets yeah all of the things we love about sydney yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth, let's go back a bit. Um, so when you were growing up uh, in either in New Zealand or had you moved to Australia by that time, what sort of things started to influence you culturally? What did you – was it the movies? Was it radio? What what got to you? Oh, look, I think um, – I think it, it was it was at school. I mean, it, it – um, and probably those high school years and then university were other – formative ones in in that sense and I um I think it, it was movies we were all you know we were all art house movie <laughs> you know movies that you had to be stoned to sit through because they were so actually so boring <laughs> Not that I was, um uh, but also things like like there I think there was a really strong cultural influence from music in particular you know the bards the poets they the, they were prophets really Leonard Cohen Bob Dylan those guys who who did things with music, but with words, and their words were, I I think they were very particular. Um, the flavour of that, like I don't think there's anything like that now, um, because they that was very romantic culture, but it was romantic, uh, and there's a lot of sex around, of course, and all of that. But there was, it was all entwined with with politics and with changing the world and making the world better and. And that sort of wonderful, crazy, utopian, we can be different, mm. uh, this can be a world based on love stuff. I mean, I was never a hippie. I was a bit young, actually. I sort of came on the tail end of all that. But then also when I was at school, at high school, all, my sister and all of her friends, more than my friends, were all, um, you know, they were all radicals. So they were all out there marching against uh, Springbok tours and apartheid and and for abortion and I can't remember all the other causes that we have. Oh, Vietnam, of course. Um anti the Vietnam War. So the, so those those things sort of radicalized our generation a bit, I mm-hmm. suppose. Not that we regarded ourselves as radical, we regarded ourselves as perfectly mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um and but then also for me I started reading uh, um you know I read um Francois Sagan uh, bonjour, Tristesse, uh, and I and I started reading, and then uh, sort of from there to people like Sartre. So by the time I went to university, I was already interested in philosophy, and I and I think I saw myself, and I think this is the thing that stuck with me for my whole life in some kind of way that makes me really weird. <laughs> I started to see myself as part of the Paris left bank ninety, <laughs> you know. That, that's the moment that I'm still living in, really, that kind of, oh. um, intellectual, bookish, but slightly drunk, <laughs> radical, um, fun, interesting oh. uh, culture. Your broad range of interests has uh, 
May Geraldine do call you a Renaissance woman. <laughs> do you like that title? <laughs> well, you know, that's all very Leonardo, isn't it? And I mean, yeah. I suppose I wish. Um, look, I'm, it was, it was, she was being kind, I think. Mm. Um, yes, I have an extremely broad range of interests, but I'm hardly a kind of inventive genius in the way that mm -mm. those guys were. Um, but but look, I mean, my my range of interest is ridiculously broad, and one of the things that I love doing is connecting bits of, you know, the, the of one of a smattering of knowledge from, you know, medicine or biology to um, literature or philosophy or music. It's, that's for me. That's really fun, and those are the kinds of bits of intellectual play that that I like. But I yeah, I think it was she was being kind. <laughs> mm. Are you enjoying being on the board of the National Trust of New South Wales? Um, yes, I probably am not a natural board member. I I'm uh, I like to get things done, um, and I, I'm not terribly blessed with patience. I'm not a natural committee person in that sense, but I do believe quite passionately that we. It's really important that we once again gird our loins to try and protect. Um, the important fabric that we have. And also before that, to decide which of the things we want to protect, because obviously you can't keep everything in the way of heritage. And it's a bit tempting um, to try and make rules like everything that's older than blah, blah, or whatever. And, and I think that's mm. probably silly. So I think, um, I, and here again, I think I'm a bit out of step with the times in the, in the sense that I think it's really important to exercise value judgments about these things and to be prepared to say that is a very good building or that is a very important terrace or streetscape um, and those other ones not so much. So we need to, uh, and probably we need to listen to experts uh, in that regard, but I um, really think that the advocacy role of the National Trust has been and needs to continue to be very important, not just in preserving the properties that they already look after, but in in trying to save things like Willow Grove, which was recently demolished in, in Parramatta, and um, King George Terrace, which is about to be essentially facaded, as it were, in Parramatta. And there's a whole lot of other things going on all the time. Central Station in Sydney is currently under threat. And, mm. you know, Barangaroo is, and the Observatory Hill is no longer going to be able to see anything. You know, So so everywhere you look, things are being destroyed. And I think um, a lot of that is, is wanton. So, mm. yes, uh, it's an important role, I think. So, uh, Elizabeth, the... the your commentary on the relationship between the built environment and the natural environment, both written and, and spoken commentary, is very provocative and, and <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a constructive sense. It, it, it does make us question those values about what makes a city tick and how do you. Is it possible to design an, an urban a, a city or does it just do you just have to let it grow organically? Good cities are a bit of both. You know, there's wisdom involved, uh, which might be why we find it so difficult. Um, I once actually said to a room full of planning historians in, in a, at a conference in Kassel in Germany, um, you know, does anyone know of, of an example of urban design, good urban design that's come through a democratic system? In other words, a system of committees and politicians and and I was going no no nine um you know so it's it's a, it is difficult it's unusual for any city to be able to do this but there are some good examples um and it is a, a kind of a mix of 
um, you need you need actually the push to grow. You need, and some cities don't have this. Uh, you need that kind of development pressure. You need people to want to be building things and growing the place and kind of investing energy as much as money in, you know, new businesses and new enterprises and new stuff happening. So, so that's a good. That's a kind of a. a I think it's a good force of of nature, if you will, um, but it needs to be tempered with wisdom. And that's where government comes in. And I think that we do planning extremely badly here. Someone, one of my um, friends, an academic said uh, recently that New South Wales has the worst planning system in the world. And I think that's probably almost true um, because it's very complicated and very interventionist, but also very um, focused on sort of letting developers do what they want, which sounds contradictory. But I think so a good planning system would um, impose rules which were inflexible, which in other words, they apply impartially to everybody, regardless of who's had lunch with the minister recently, um, but a very, very simple. So everyone can understand them and everyone knows what the game is and how how it's played. So it's not obscure and it's you don't have to wade through, you know, 75 PDFs online in order to find out what rules apply to your site. Um, so it's really clear and evident. And I, I think that's not very difficult to do, but you have to want to do it. And you also, to, to get the, those rules in place in a way that is wise and produces a good place, and that's where you need to engage the public and the community very strongly at that sort of front end of it. It's like, what are our values and what we want to keep and um, how much sun do we need to get into the streets and whereabouts, what kind of place do we want? You know, so so those questions need to be addressed early uh, um, and instead of locking the public out, as our governments typically do, we need to invite mm. them in. I, I was surprised to find out that... Um uh, I live in Camaray, where they're just destroying the golf course. Yeah. Uh, and I was surprised to find out when they did their extremely tokenistic consultations, <laughs> community consultations, where basically they, they told us the decisions that they'd already been made, irrespective <laughs> of what we may yes. think about them. I was surprised to find that, you know, it, it was a, there was a 10-point progress plan and the environmental impact statement didn't come in till about stage seven or eight. And I was surprised it wasn't a little bit earlier in the process. It's a disgrace. <laughs> and not only that, but all those environmental impact statements, they're all written by people who do them for a living and they all work for the big developers and they know how how to you know, Precisely. phrase things so that they look harmless and actually are not. I mean, it's just, it's a scam. They they know how to say what they have no intention of doing. Exactly, mm. Mm. and and government <laughs> connives at that. Government's amongst the worst. Oh oh, appalling, mm. appalling. Anyway, that's my bitch. So uh, you know, <laughs> couldn't agree more. It's almost time for us to wind up, but I really oh. want to ask this question of you: Do you think we will keep some sort of powerhouse in Ultimo? Um, <laughs> what I mean, it's all up in the air, as I understand at the moment. Yes, look, uh, the powerhouse has been a really disgraceful process because it's been disingenuous from the beginning. Mm. Um, uh, what's being moved to um, Parramatta is not really the powerhouse. It's not going to be the powerhouse. Mm. It's really something else. And that, that ought to be a good thing, but I think it's in the wrong site and, and it's demolished buildings that should have been kept. Um, 
hopefully it will still be a good museum. I'm not persuaded by the building. Um, it's a great big thing on the banks of the river on a sort of floodplain. It just seems a bit daft. But <laughs> Parramatta needs its own big institution, and that's a, that's a good thing. Mm. But it shouldn't have involved either destroying Willow Grove or destroying the Ultimo powerhouse, um, which was a fantastic piece of work. And the fact that it had all those amazing mm. big steam engines, which are, you know, world famous, some of them, and and it not only had that, but had them working and had that reticulated steam system with a with its own boiler in the basement to do that mm. as if it's a sort of 19th century thing. Oh, that was that was fabulous. And mm. when it opened that that thing was so great because you could see all those big things chugging away and working and steaming. And it was really cool. Um, it's got progressively less interesting over that time. And I suppose that's made it easier for them to get rid of all that. But I, I'm sorry, mm. you know, uh, they, there was that big fuss about a year ago, whenever it was, when everyone said, oh, power has been saved, power has and ultimately is going to be blah, blah, blah. But it's not really being saved. They're really, they're still, you know, there's a competition on at the moment, as you know, to, um, redesign and probably demolish the Salmon Award-winning mm. 1988 mm. scheme um, for the powerhouse, and and a lot of it will be uh, the, the adjacent site will be sold, and most of the stuff is already in storage. Um, and who knows when we'll ever see it again? If mm. so, I, I think I'm really sorry about that. I think we'll probably end up with a fashion museum mm. because fashion is kind of trendy and easy mm. to do, and not, uh, you know, it's kind of small and mobile and you can easily get rid of it if you want to sell the site. So I think there's a lot of cynicism on the part of the government here. We we have yet to see what will happen. And again, it could be brilliant, but um, I'm just, I'm really worried by what they've already, that revamping of Darling Harbour has already destroyed so much in the way of what could have been really fine public space. So I, I'm concerned that, um, yeah, that there's going to be yet more government profit taking out of public land and not enough coming back in return. We hope that uh, you'll be around to keep uh, telling us about, about it. <laughs> <Me too. laughs> we, we value your opinions. We value your things that you write, your columns, your essays. We uh, very much appreciate you, Elizabeth Farrelly. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. It's lovely to meet you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. And, uh, good luck. Bye, Elizabeth. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. 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 